0: Uh, My name is Ryan Schreckengast and I am one of the preachers here at GFC and I'm also uh, a teacher. Uh, I am the middle school teacher, but I've had occasion uh, to sometimes encounter some of the younger students at my school in the first and second grade age uh, outside of school, maybe at a restaurant or at the store uh, and for for those students encountering me outside of school, seems to be an intensely awkward experience. Um, oh, oh, hi, Mr. Shrek. Uh, hi, <laughs> it, it's clear that that outside of the expected context. It just throws off all of the norms and how they, they are comfortable interacting with me. Uh, and it takes some getting used to an idea that a person can actually exist outside of their familiar context, right? And that's true for everyone, not just younger kids. And and I think that similarly this morning, uh, we're going to see Luke making an argument to that effect, That the spirit of God now dwells inside of a new context for his Jewish audience. They're used to experiencing God in a temple, in the ark, sealed away and separated from the people. But now, now friends, Luke is going to argue that God is no longer dwelling in a temple, but actually with his people, transforming them into his new temple. So this morning, I want to ask and hopefully answer two very important questions. These are questions that are crucial to the audience of Luke, as he wrote that letter in Acts, as well as crucial for us this morning. And the first question that I want to ask you is, where does the Spirit of God dwell? The second question is, what happens when that Spirit of God is encountered by us, by humanity? We're going to be reading Acts 4, 31 through 5, 11 this morning. And I've laid out your outline primarily to focus on the answer to that second question. What happens when God's spirit is encountered? Uh, And you'll see here that there is transformation. Transformation, which we see in chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. And there is also terror. And we'll see that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But before we look at those answers to that second question, I want to return first uh, to the, the first letter that was written by Luke to Theophilus uh, to address the first question. This is found in the book of Luke, and we get some context for this morning's uh, passages. And, and I want to read just two short verses where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he is completing the work that he was sent By his father to this earth to fulfill. Look at Luke 23 verses 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now this is important context for this morning because the curtain of the temple was the barrier that separated the dwelling place of God's spirit called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world. This was where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, which was the symbol of God's promise to one day dwell with his people. This was a place that God, a holy And righteous God could come and could live amidst the sinful people all around him. But, as we read, if that curtain was torn. If that holy place was exposed to the sinfulness all around it then the question must be, where has the Holy Spirit of God gone? Where does he now dwell if it's not in this special, reserved, holy place within the temple? And I think that in today's text, Luke makes this compelling argument to both Theophilus and us here this morning that the Holy Spirit of God has now made a brand new temple to dwell within the hearts of his people. The people that God has cleansed and made holy by the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's start by reading Acts 4, verses 31 through 37. And we'll see how that indwelling Holy Spirit utterly transforms those who encounter him and transforms them into God's dwelling place. Read this with me, please. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon all of them. And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Friends, in this portion of Luke's letter, he, he lays out for his audience some of the facts about the early church. We see that they were filled with the Spirit in verse 31. They were extraordinarily unified in heart and in soul in verse 32. And we see that they generously gave to one another. Verses 34 to 37. But how would these truths about this organization have impacted Theophilus, who is reading this letter? And how should these truths impact us here this morning? I'm sad to say that I have frequently heard this passage interpreted in one of two major ways. Either it's simply a how-to guide for doing church. If you are a real follower of Christ, then you should sell all that you own and you should have nothing except what you donate to the church. Or the second way this is frequently interpreted is that it's just disregarded as mere history. That that was only what happened back then. That's not really relevant to us here today. And friends, I think that both of these interpretations fall dismally short of showing the glorious transformation that Luke is claiming happens here to those who encounter the Holy Spirit. Luke is giving an example here of the proof that God has fulfilled The promise that he made through all of the Old Testament prophets. He said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what is happening here in these passages. It starts in verse 31 by this powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit among the gathered believers. And you'll remember that when the Holy Spirit first came upon the apostles at Pentecost, Peter made a pretty outrageous claim. He said that this indwelling of the Holy Spirit was proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And so now, in verse 32, the Holy Spirit fills not only the apostles, but the full number of those who believed. This is not some isolated event that only the elite experience the Holy Spirit's indwelling. All, the full number of those who believe, experience the same thing. Verse 32 tells us that there were diverse men and women from all over the world here who became of one heart and soul. This is a transformation. Verses 31 and 33, we see that uneducated fishermen of the lowest class spoke the words of God. And they did it with boldness. With great power, they gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a transformation. And this isn't only a spiritual transformation, but a practical one. As we see in verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And that was such a radical transformation that we hear in verse 34, Luke says there was not a needy person among them. Wow. These are incredible transformations. Things that simply couldn't be accomplished outside of a radical working of God. But friends, that's not where it stops. Just as we learned last week that the lame man who was walking and leaping and praising the Lord was not simply a random act of kindness, but was actually an intentional proof of the fulfillment of scripture, so too is this description right here of God's church. This is a characterization that will identify the spirit of God living in his people. Let me show you that in the book of Deuteronomy, God outlines the practices that would set his people apart, the things that would would mark them as those with whom he made his special promise, his covenant among his people. And in Deuteronomy, these things include lots of details um, about places of worship uh, and, and clean and unclean food, tithe. And and something that was called the year of release, which was among God's people. Uh, this is important because in Deuteronomy fifteen, two through four, God says that his people were to follow this practice every seven years. It says this Whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And then listen to this promise. There will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Do you see the illusion here, friends? That, that God's people have always been to use the literal land that God has given them to care for God's family. And by describing the, the, the character of the early church here, we see the fulfillment of this promise. We see that God's people are set apart It's not simply some moral nicety that Christians should be generous because it's a good thing to do. And it's not even just a a dogmatic obligation that every Christian has to take a vow of poverty and sell everything that they own and, and have nothing to their name. It's so much deeper than that. This is a recognition that among the people of God, everything belongs to the Lord. Everything is a gift from him. Everything is an inheritance. It's, it's not something that you, you can own and, and just use at your own discretion. To your own satisfaction for yourself. God's people recognize through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that everything down to their very lives belongs not to them, but to God. And I think that Luke wants his audience to recognize that these things are true among the followers of Christ. To prove to them... To prove that the Holy Spirit has begun transforming them to look like God always promised his people would look. And I think that Luke also very intentionally wants to draw our attention to the absence of this transformation. Among the Jewish establishment that was also claiming to be the people of God. Also claiming it, claiming to be the people of God alone does not prove that it is true. Neither does the right of ancestry that because they are children of Abraham, they are the people of God. The contrast is clear, and I think that, that Luke set it out for us also in his previous book, Luke 2, verses 46 through 47. And we get another description here of the religious institution by Jesus. This is not a flattering description. He says. That, that these institutions. Beware of those who devour. Widows houses. And for a pretense. Make long prayers. They will receive. The greater condemnation. So. It's not the Jewish temple. that is has the evidence. Of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But rather, it is the followers of Christ. That is unexpected. But I want you to see also this morning that not all those who are among the Jewish priesthood failed to believe and to be transformed. That transformation doesn't have to do with your heritage. Luke specifically says here in, in Acts 4 verse 36 that there's this man who sold a field and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. His name was Joseph. And he was a Levite and he was a man of Cyprus. So this guy Joseph is both a Levite that is a member of the priestly family of Israel but he is also a foreigner, a man of Cyprus. So he is both of those things, but above all, he is a Christ follower. He has believed and he has become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so his life reflects that understanding that everything belongs to the Lord. So friends, how does all of this apply to us this morning? It shows us that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that he will transform every aspect of that life into an instrument to be used by God. The Holy Spirit that is sent by the Son will accomplish the will of the Father. And that will is nothing less than complete transformation. To transform me to be like him. What, what an absolutely astounding truth. That, that this power dwelling inside of me can turn a selfish and insecure and fearful doubter. Into a son of the most high God. By being cleansed by the blood of Christ. And made into a new temple. Something that, that Yahweh God would choose to dwell in. And what does that look like? That, that What does that transformation mean in our lives? Well, friends, it means that we come to love the things that he loves. And that we even come to suffer for the things that he suffered for. More and more and more continually throughout our lives, this transformation takes place. So, of course, we use whatever land God has given us to care for his people. It's not our land. It's his land. Of course, we use whatever time he has given us to invest in the relationships and care for the people that he cares for. It's not our time. It's his time. It's his money. This, this is his body. This is his church. These here are all his families, his country, and look, friends, this is his world. And, and it's through this, this is how the Holy Spirit of God transforms us. Not because we, we hear some history lesson out of the Bible, and not because we, we impose some moral dogmatic obligation that we have to check off our list. But this is a radical and a total change of who we are and what we love. And friends, why we're even here? Friends, we are here to be his children. To be his dwelling place in the world until he calls us home. And that truth should humble us. I think that we should fall on our faces in awe. In awe of the power of the Holy Spirit that could accomplish all of that. That is what the Holy Spirit is. But sadly, in our fallen human nature... Too often we try to turn this power of the Holy Spirit to our own ends. To to a simple good feeling. Or to, to a means for our welfare. As, as a means to the end of our own security. Eternal or temporal. We try to manipulate God's Holy Spirit... To our own ends. And that friends is something that the Holy Spirit of God will not allow. He simply won't. So let's read Acts 5 verses 1 through 11. And we'll see how we should be terrified to trifle with this Holy Spirit. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold, or with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy And breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up. And carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours. His wife came in. Not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said yes for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Friends, encountering the Holy Spirit means coming face to face with the greatest power in the universe. Here, Luke continues the story, but but with a sobering contrast Between Joseph, who was transformed by his encounter with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias and Sapphira, who were killed by their encounter with the Holy Spirit. And now I recognize that that this story may make us feel uncomfortable. God striking dead a man and a woman... This is not exactly in, in the top 10 Bible stories that you tell your coworkers as part of your testimony. <laughs> At least I don't. <laughs> but, but I think again that Luke is making an essential argument here for the fact that this Holy Spirit of God is now indwelling His people, His church, Who are the followers of Jesus. In verse 1 and 2. We see that this is an intentional choice. On the part of Ananias and Sapphira. To just bring a partial offering. Before the apostles. But to keep some of it for themselves. And I use that offering. That word offering on purpose. Because that matters. Because why is this such a big deal? They didn't have to bring anything, right? They didn't have to bring any offering at all. So for God to strike them dead seems like a pretty big overreaction, can't it? And, and we could try to assign all kinds of motivations to Ananias and Sapphira for, for why this crime was worthy of, of this death sentence. We could do that. But the truth is, we don't know their motivations. It's not given to us here. Beyond the fact that they were tempted. So I don't think that we, we actually do these verses justice by making this story primarily about Ananias and Sapphira. They're not the main focus here. Look at who Luke says. That Peter focuses on. In this interaction. In verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart. To lie. To the Holy Spirit. And verse 4. You have not lied to man. But to God. And in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed together. To test the spirit. Of the Lord. Again. The Holy Spirit Is the focus. And as uncomfortable as this is, this kind of death is not unprecedented among the people of Israel. In fact, God has similarly struck dead on several occasions throughout Israel's history. And when did he do this? When his dwelling place, the Ark of the Covenant, was mistreated. Or when false sacrifices were made to him. Here are just a few examples. In First Samuel, we hear the story of Hophni and Phinehas. Who were sons of the high priest. They attempted to manipulate the Ark of the Covenant into their own ends. Which caused both their deaths and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. Then in 2 Samuel, another story, we hear when the ark is finally returned. It's it's handled inappropriately by a man named Uzzah. And he is struck dead. By the power of God. But I think that, that there's another, even more parallel story. Which is found in Leviticus chapters 9 and 10. Here we get another contrast... That is almost identical to this story. That we read about in Acts. This is the story of Aaron. Who was the brother of Moses. And he offers God. An appropriate sacrifice. Of a sin offering. And a peace offering. That God had told him to offer. And accepts. By sending out. God's fire to consume. The offering. And through that. The people are blessed. But in contrast, Aaron's sons, who are called Nadab and Abihu, attempt to make an unauthorized offering. And so it says in chapter 10, verse 2, that fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. At which point Moses calls in some young men in verse 4 to come near and carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Why do I talk about this? Because this story from Acts would ring some bells for a Jewish audience, wouldn't it? Even down to the details From from verses 6 and 10 where we hear about the young men carrying out the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira. Out of the presence of the apostles. Where in Leviticus it said to carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary. Do you see the pattern? It's not simply that a man and a woman here were struck dead. That's not what's the main point here. It's what that death implies about the presence of God among his people. It means that Yahweh has fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham. It means that the same spirit of God from the days of Moses and of the prophets now dwells Not in an ark, behind a curtain, in a temple, but he dwells literally in his people. And so that's why it says in verse 11, that great fear came upon the whole church. The church. And upon all who heard these things. Not only unbelievers... But believers as well. Why? Because friends, the phrase awesome power here is an understatement. This is the power of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in sinful man. Have you ever thought, like, like really thought about how powerful the sun is. The sun accounts for approximately 98% of the total mass of our solar system. Its interior could hold over 1.3 million Earths. At its surface, its temperature reaches 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And 27 billion degrees Fahrenheit at its core. The sun converts 700 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. And the sun is only an average star among the hundreds of thousands of millions of stars in the galaxies. What if I told you that the power of the sun was going to come and live inside of you? What if I told you that the power that created the sun was going to come and live inside of you? And not just created our Son but created and knows the names of all of the stars in all of the galaxies. I don't know about you, but that kind of power terrifies me. I think that it's completely appropriate to feel fear when faced with that kind of awesome power. And even more so when we consider what it said in Luke that as Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that had previously been separating mankind from that power was torn away. The curtain of the Holy of Holies, the only shield that we had against that power was torn. And we're exposed But friends, now our shield is Christ. The blood of the Lamb, God's pure sacrifice, at last makes it possible for the Holy Spirit of God to fulfill God's promise to dwell with his people. And the implications of that are incredible. My son Aidan actually asked me as I was preparing for this sermon, Dad, why do you work hard to write down your sermon? And and the answer is right here. Because I'm trying to, to handle the word of God. That's what I'm trying to do. And that cannot be done lightly. The power of the Holy Spirit is awesome. And a sinful man is going to try to speak his words? Friends, that's why I can do nothing except lean on his power. To trust only in Jesus Christ as my shield. Because... I am not qualified to handle that kind of power. Without Jesus, friends, I would burn here to a crisp. I would fall dead like Ananias. Only through the blood of Jesus can that kind of power exist within me. And not just destroy me utterly. This is what I think Luke is trying to show to Theophilus. That the Holy Spirit of God, who covenanted with Abraham, who dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant, who formed the stars of the heaven, has through Jesus Christ come to dwell in his people. And some healthy fear is appropriate. But at the same time, that same power is powerful enough to transform those people who are sinful into the image of Jesus. So how does this apply to us this morning? It means that every single man and woman and child on this planet. Should run to the nail pierced hands of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us depends on his sacrifice for our sins. It also means that Christianity is an all or nothing proposal. When you encounter God's spirit, you either allow him to begin transforming you in every aspect of your life. Or you will be utterly destroyed. There's no halfway. You can't offer God a partial sacrifice. You can't give him some of your life, but hold part of it back. The Holy Spirit is not deceived by these false appearances of sacrifice. You cannot say, I will give up this for you, God, but not that. What is it that you hold back from God? I'll trust everything else to you, Jesus, but not my finances. Those I need. I'll trust everything else to you, God, but not my sex life. This is who I am. I'll trust everything else, God, but not my health. Not my kids. Not my career. What is it? Friends, do not let Satan tempt you to believe that you can hold these things back from the transforming Spirit of God. Lastly, these verses mean that whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, all of us are subject to the Holy Spirit of God and His will. God is not an instrument of our will. For the Christian, His spirit in you does not mean that he becomes a means to your security, your comfort, or even your self-fulfillment. And you're in peril if your view of God is only one that brings about your own personal prosperity. Jesus warns that whoever tries to hold on to their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, they will find it. They will be remade into the image of God. So I say again run to the hands of Jesus. And know that if you do, he will be faithful to not only save you, but to transform you. Into the image of God. To make his dwelling. Among you. To walk among you. To be your God. And that you. Will be his child. Let's pray. Father. I am convicted here this morning. Of how. Relatively little. I esteem the Holy Spirit in my life. Lord, may I be reminded this week and and more and more forever of the amazing work that your Holy Spirit has done in me. God, may I be humbled by it. May I be driven more and more to hide in your son, Jesus. God, thank you Thank you so much for sending your spirit to convict us and to draw us deeper into your Son. So Lord, I pray for us this week that, in spite of all of the the things clamoring for our attention, the reasons to fear the the, the anger, the pride, Lord, may we set all of it aside and humbly come to your son that we may be transformed by your holy spirit to be used to be used by you god we pray these things in your name amen